Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, Britain, the US and Australia signed a new defence pact. Is this the start of a global navy? We've been present all over the globe for hundreds of years. It's not, this is not a new thing. And actually what is new is moving to a more persistent rather than an episodic as military and political leaders set out grand plans in London, can the problems in procurement be fixed? People who don't want to see change are content being part of a suboptimal failing procurement system which is costing billions extra and is failing servicemen and women. And what future threats keep an expert on information warfare awake at night? The thing that keeps me awake is the nature of their evolution. Threats that happened last week will evolve and change. And actually the thing that keeps me awake is how quickly we can respond to new things. Last year, the military was drafted in to turn Excel Centre in London into the Nightingale Hospital on standby to treat coronavirus patients. This week, it's the venue for one of the biggest defence shows in the world. Much of this week's programme focuses on events at DSEI, but the week's biggest defence news came in a joint news conference between the leaders of Britain, the United States and Australia. All three nations have signed a new security pact to share advanced technologies in a major push to counter Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific. AUKUS will bring together our sailors, our scientists and our industries to maintain and expand our edge in military capabilities and critical technologies such as cyber, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies and undersea domains. Most significantly, the UK, Australia and the US will be joined even more closely together. For more than a century, we have stood together for the course of peace and freedom, motivated by the beliefs we share, sustained by the bonds of friendship we have forged, enabled by the sacrifice of those who have gone before us and inspired by our shared hope for those who will follow us. The first big move as part of AUKUS is the construction of a new fleet of nuclear-powered submarines for Australia, which will cancel a multi-billion pound existing deal with France. China's criticised the pact, saying countries need to shake off their Cold War mentality. But Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says it's a natural move between old allies. Other nations in the Pacific are investing in capabilities that give them greater range and greater reach. It also gives them greater detection. So Australia quite rightly needs to be able to counter that. China has launched on a huge investment in its military and its surface fleet and aircraft. It's uh, one of the most, was probably the largest expanding armed forces on the, on the planet. But it's not just about China. It is about the modern capabilities uh, a country such as Australia needs. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark has been learning more about the pact. Uh, Michael, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison never mentioned China by name, but this is all about counting Beijing's growing influence, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, remember that Beijing and, and uh, Australia have actually fallen out quite badly in the last couple of years. The Australians are looking around to bolster their security. And my understanding is that this arrangement was, was pushed by Australia. We weren't bending their, their arms to, uh, to try to go into it. They wanted this arrangement. The essence of it is this long-range submarine capability. To have nuclear-powered submarines means that they can go long, long distances. And if you're Australia and you're worried about China's naval 
domination, then you need submarines that can do that. So that's the essence of this whole thing. And of course, um, it is, it's in response to Chinese pressure uh, across the whole of the Pacific. And given the three nations are already part of the Five Eyes Alliance, why do they need this pact? And what will Canada and New Zealand make of it? Yeah, very good question. Because there's always a danger, of course, that Canada and New Zealand, who are the other members of the Five Eyes, will feel a bit put out and that this might be the beginning of a, of a Three Eyes arrangement. The Ministry of Defence would say, well, look, the Five Eyes is only about intelligence and that's more uh, important and stronger now than it ever was before. And remember that this is the essence of a new process this this trilateral arrangement between uh, the United States, Australia and Britain may well become the beginning of something that other nations can join in at, at a, a maritime level. But I think the three main countries here will be very anxious to demonstrate that this is extra to the Five Eyes, not in any way a sort of an exclusive version of the Five Eyes. So how is the deal going down in Australia? Tim Cooper spoke to Michael Shoebridge from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Sharing these nuclear uh, technologies are the crown jewels of military capability globally. And the fact that the UK and the US are bringing Australia into, into an agreement that you've had together since 1958 is an astounding strategic development that's wholly to the good. The French must be sitting there thinking, my goodness, what do we have to do? Because they've really been bending over backwards with submarines and, and the deal there. A uh, uh, slap in the face to them, really. I think this is a really difficult part of this decision. I get the logic of working with the US and UK on this. But really, Australia's spent the last, last six years telling the French and the Naval Group uh, submarine builder that the last thing we wanted was their nuclear boat. We wanted them to turn it into a diesel-powered version. So they'd be looking in the mirror and saying, well, what happened there? Uh, that's a serious strategic issue, really, because that partnership between Australia and France really could still be of huge strategic importance, both to Europe and to our part of the world. France is an enormously important global and regional power, and we've really set back that relationship. How has the tripartite deal gone down in Australia? What's the reaction been? We've got two sides of politics here. We've got the coalition government and the opposition Labor Party. And uh, the leader of the Labor Party, Anthony Albanese, has come out strongly saying nuclear-powered submarines are important for our security. The deal's a good one. Uh, he doesn't want Australia becoming a nuclear weapon state. Uh, but, of course, that's not part of this deal. So strong parliamentary support and I think a pretty positive public reaction because the public has been ahead of our political leaders for some time in understanding the dangers of an aggressive China and they know this is what this deal is about. It's about a positive way of deterring China from using its military power aggressively in our region. That was Michael Shoebridge from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, Michael Clark, some analysts have called this the first global navy. Do you see it that way? Uh, well, it'll have a long way to go before it uh, becomes that. But I think undoubtedly Britain and uh, the United States and Australia hope that this will be the building block for something else. The momentum that this creates, the technological momentum, may well start to bring other powers in. And I think we are looking now for both 
political and technical reasons, at much greater naval cooperation in the Indo-Pacific, and particularly in the Pacific itself, because of everyone's fear of, of the way the Chinese Navy is growing and the sort of a, a, aggressive uh, approach that the Chinese take to most of their neighbours. Michael Clark, stay with us. This is Zitrap. News of the new security pact with Australia and the US comes as London hosts DSEI, Defence and Security Equipment International, happens every two years. And for many, it's controversial, with protesters dubbing it the world's biggest arms fair. But it's also a huge meeting for military and political leaders and the global defence industry. This year, it's all about integration, the dominant theme of plans to reform the whole of the UK's armed forces. The integrated review pointed to a technological future, something the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark Carlton-Smith, acknowledged in his keynote speech at DSEI. It's not too early to get a real sense of what's happening today as artificial intelligence, ubiquitous encryption and sensors and quantum mechanics transform warfare. And these lessons reflect a changing character of war and we're changing with it including taking a significant bet on tech. The chief of the air staff called the RAF the 20th century's original tech startup as he talked about an increased reliance on unmanned aircraft and artificial intelligence. And for the Royal Navy, the aim is to embrace technological change to retain an advantage over adversaries. The second Sea Lord, Vice Admiral Nick Hine, told me more. So I think there are three areas where we have traditionally held some uh, operational advantage and therefore we should double down on investing in underwater dominance, in future commando forces and in uh, uncrewed air systems where I think we have uh, the ability to make a significant difference. You point to decades of underinvestment and the burden of maintaining legacy capabilities. How has the Navy suffered as a result? Has it got too small, do you think? No, I don't think it's about scale. Um, it's more about um, how we use our equipment and how we marry our equipment to our people. So if uh, you were to look at uh, ships companies from 50 years ago, they were four, five, six times the size they are now. So in terms of size of numbers of people, I think that's, that's okay. We're going the same way everybody else is, i.e. we're reducing the number of people we employ, but we're employing people with different skill sets and we're upskilling our people. And then in terms of the number of platforms, the number of platforms doesn't become as important as the capability which they, they, they effectively harness and we can deliver in a different way. So to what extent is it about uh, creating new capabilities to offset the fact that the manpower has reduced and the number of ships have reduced? Absolutely about that. It's about harnessing the technological change that is undergoing all around us, making the most of those areas where uh, technological advances exist outside of defence and determining where we can use those uh, to our advantage. We don't need to invent everything. What we do need to do is make the best use of everything that exists and we need to harness everybody's outcomes in order to deliver better for value for the taxpayer. In terms of what's going on at the moment, how would you view the carrier strike group's deployment in the Pacific? Is it a show of global influence or is it showboating? Well, I, I mean, I clearly would say it's not the latter. I mean, we've been present all over the globe for hundreds of years. It's not, this is not a new thing. And actually what is new is moving to a more persistent rather than an episodic presence. I think everybody would say 
particularly those people in the region that um, episodic is bad, persistent is better. We become part of the fabric and we've been part of the fabric of the Indo-Pacific for many, many, many years. This is just a, um, a, a statement of we would like to be there more often, more regularly and indeed uh, engage with our allies and partners uh, on, a, on a more regular basis. You've been critical that for too long the Royal Navy has rested on bygone victories. What would you consider to be a victory for the Royal Navy in the future? So tradition is good, history is good, forward-looking is better. If I was to turn around and say the three things for the Navy that I think would be defining going forward would be a more open and engaging culture, ensure that we remain relevant to the UK and uh, to the taxpayer and that we deliver better value. Second Sea Lord Vice Admiral Nick Hine there. Back to Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, Nick Hine told me he doesn't think the Royal Navy has got too small. A lot of people might disagree with him. Uh, yes, they do. Uh, I mean, the Royal Navy is not particularly small by modern standards. I mean, the Navy is 22 surface ships, um, major surface ships, uh, 10 submarines, another 42 smaller ships from offshore patrol vessels to inshore patrol vessels. So it's a, it's a Navy of about 74 ships in total. Um, it depends what you wanted to do. The, the, the people who say it's too small are clearly looking at what the government thinks the Navy should be able to achieve. And they're probably right that it is, it's it's almost too small to do all of those things because it's the, the Navy is about to be very, very busy and with not much margin for error and not much margin for maintenance or for attrition, you know, losing vessels for one reason or another. And the biggest driver at the moment of, of numbers in the Navy, the biggest problem or issue is the idea that we've got two carriers. It's very hard to see how we could operate both aircraft carriers simultaneously somewhere in the world. I mean, one after another, boxing and coxing, alternating with refits and so on. That's possible. But with a Navy that we will have of 24 escort vessels eventually by the end of the 2020s, it's very hard to, to actually uh, you know, make that stretch to two operational carriers. And so the roles that the Navy um, ha are being asked to perform is the issue, not really the number of the 74 vessels that the Navy can deploy. Well, DSCI is in part a kind of defence department store with companies from around the world showing off their latest kit. Some arrives in response to newly emerging threats like the surge in the use of drones. There are particular headache at airports. Just a couple of years ago, military kit was used to keep London's skies safe. Skywall is a new system designed to deal with that threat, effectively a giant net to catch a rogue drone. Sergeant Emma Kearns from the Royal Artillery explains. So inside we would load it with six projectiles from there it would get to the position it would track the the drone in the sky and bring it down to the ground automatically really good piece of kit it can tell the difference between a bird and a drone in the sky which obviously helps quite a lot and it's very quickly reloaded again uh, so basically what it does is as soon as that's fired off its first projectile it comes back into action by reloading and at that time the camera is already looking for another uh, drone in the sky. Another new piece of kit on display this week targeted a more recent threat, coronavirus. Chromec is a company based in County Durham specialising in biological and radiation detection. Its chief executive Dr Arnab Basu showed me how its new device effectively sniffs the air looking for evidence of Covid. The fan is collecting a lot of air uh, and, and that is then condensing that air and taking out the pathogenic particles 
and, and analyzing those pathogenic particles and confirming whether there is COVID in the air or not every 30 minutes. It constantly reads the air. It, it, is, it is a continuous monitoring system. It requires no, nobody to interact with it. It runs autonomously for 24 hours and then you have to change some reagents. So it is really designed for areas of public places. We have done a lot of trials in school, pilots in airports and, and increasingly in hospitals and, and NHS settings as well. And, and presumably there is also a potential use uh, in terms of security for a terrorist attack of some kind? Absolutely. That is probably more or the, the very first system that you pointed at, which is this one. This is a broad-range pathogen detection system. This system is based on DNA sequencing. So we have been developing this system together with the U.S. Department of Defense agency for the last 30 months, pre-pandemic, mainly aimed initially at looking at broad area monitoring for pathogens, viruses, bacteria. What this does is not only looks for COVID, it looks for every pathogen. Because it does DNA sequencing, we are able to ultimately identify all bacteria, all viruses, and even novel ones that may be emerging. What kind of interest have you had from the defense industry? There is a genuine interest today about what we are developing here because this is a capability that doesn't exist. And, and this is not just a little, little incremental change from where today biodetection is to a little bit more. This is really, again, a groundbreaking, a step change, a real capability change in, in, in biodetection. That was Dr. Arnab Basu from Chromex speaking to me at DSEI in London. One of the first announcements to be made this week was a new £70 million plus contract to develop laser and radio frequency weapons. Trials of these directed energy weapons are due to start in 2023, with claims they could revolutionise the battlefield. Jeremy Quinn is the minister responsible for defence procurement. I asked him just how revolutionary these new weapons could be. First of all, they have a number of advantages. So traditional munitions, you expect to have carry ammunition with you. Uh, you expect to have a target and then, uh, and then deploy using that munition. These are electricity-based targeted lasers. So, for example, the UAS, you can just dwell on that for perhaps a couple of seconds. It can achieve effects to burn out the system, bring it down to the ground and safely de uh, demobilise it. And how will it change the capabilities of the armed forces and the battlefield itself? That's the kind of thing we're working on. So the important thing here is we've got tests and trials. And that's why it's so exciting to be in the armed forces at the moment. We have committed uh, over £6.6 .6 billion for research and development over the next uh, four years. So this is one of a range of capabilities that we are testing, we're trialling, but we think this is the moment that, that, that this, this product is really, this time has come. And what will they be able to do, these weapons? We have got a whole range of capabilities that we think they may be useful for, but I'm going to wait for the trials before I'm too prescriptive about where we see the applicability. But UAS is one to be on with. So it's fair to say it could be quite a few years to come before we actually see them on the battlefield? I would expect it to be a number of years before we see them on, on the battlefield, but trials in 2023 and the whole emphasis of our R&D programme and in our investment is accelerating the speed of change, being able to put, bring things forward faster and more effectively to the front line. If we could just turn to the armoured vehicle programme, uh, the Ajax trials have resumed. Does that suggest that you've got a closer to coming to have a timetable for actually putting them into action? Well, we've got a timetable now for doing the trials, which means that we'll know where the problems are. So I'll be very open with you. Uh, we know there are issues with uh, noise and vibration. We need to resolve those because I'm not going to bring in a uh, kit that can't be used. This has to meet our requirements. It has to be worthwhile. So 
we've got the, we've got the trials underway uh, at Millbrook. They will reveal uh, where the vibration issues lie. There are already thought processes going on as to what may eradicate that issue, and there's work being undertaken in terms of uh, how we can eradicate the noise problems. But until we've got the trial results, I, I can't commit to a timescale for bringing it in. Some analysts have suggested you're either going to have to spend a lot more money on this or call it a day and lose the billions that have already been spent. Which will it be, do you think? The benefit we have is a firm price contract uh, with General Dynamics. And what that means is that they've committed to provide us, at our specification, well, the specification that's been agreed, 589 armoured vehicles for a fixed price of £5.5 billion. So if we do need to get things fixed, uh, that's for General Dynamics' account. Uh, we are working closely with them. We both want to see this resolved, and we are determined to make certain this works and bring it into service. Are you then saying that there won't be an overspend on this programme because General Dynamics will foot the bill? In terms of the contract, the £5.5 billion contract, that is a firm price. So yes, it is their responsibility to deliver that kit to us for the price that we've agreed. In terms of procurement in general, the Public Accounts Committee has talked about poor project management, inadequate performance by contractors, huge cost overspends and uh, long delays. Obviously, with the programmes you have for the future, can you be sure that this won't be something that repeats itself over and over again? Because we talk about these problems for years. Guarantees I can't give. What I can say, though, is through DSIS, through the work that we've done in our new security and defence industrial strategy, we have set out the framework which we do believe will improve procurement for the future. There's been a tendency to say, we're not going to accept anything until it's 100% perfect. Well, sometimes, like we are on Boxer, get a really good bit of kit, bring it in, and then spirally develop it. That helps the army, but it also helps and our other armed forces. It also helps industry. We've got to get smarter as to how we procure. That I fully accept. Defence Procurement Minister Jeremy Quinn there. Uh, Michael Clark, Jeremy Quinn saying procurement is being hampered by the desire for perfection, which echoes something we heard from Vice Admiral Nick Hine earlier, that the military doesn't need to invent everything. Yes, that's right. I mean, it depends what we're talking about. I mean, he, Jeremy Quinn mentioned there the directed energy weapons. And although he was being careful what he said about it, I mean, we are very good at directed energy weapons. British technology in that particular area is very good. And if you're going to have directed energy weapons, then you need perfection because they have to work 100% or 99.9%. But if you're talking about armoured vehicles or some of the forms of, of uh, transport aircraft, then, of course, you can you can think in terms of, of, of creating material from the civilian sector. And increasingly, of course, the, the technique in defence procurement is to synthesise what is out there in the civilian sector and make it suitable for the military's requirements. And that's that's more an art than a science. And I think Jeremy Quinn was trying to point to that. It really depends on you know what you want to achieve and whether, you, whether there is no prizes for coming second, as there isn't in directed energy weapons, or whether you can live with something suboptimal if you can have greater numbers of whatever the system the more the platform tends to be. Well, the defence analyst Francis Chuser is a long-standing critic of failures in the procurement system. He told me that pursuit of perfection is part of the problem. What is worrying is uh, a phrase like 80% of the capability will cost you 50% of the budget. The last 20% will cost you the remaining 50%. This has been known about for 30 to 40 years. And yet still, people ignore this. They want 100% from day one and that is what drives cost. Other countries are very good at saying, well, 
yeah, we think we could get 100% on day one, but the, the cost increment for that is just not worth it. We will bring this up to date as we go. Jeremy Quinn cannot guarantee that the problems with procurement can be fixed. It's been criticised over many, many years for all the obvious things that have been brought out uh, from the Public Accounts Committee, for example. How do you judge it? Procurement in the UK has been getting progressively worse over the last decade. If you say there are problems in the British system, you get the instant answer, well, it's the same everywhere. Not true. Just not true. Then they throw back the absolutely correct, what would you do? And so you start outlaying the, uh, laying out the things you would do. Too difficult. We've had reform every year for the past five years, to which I would just say it has never been done properly. People have always tried to sabotage it because it's uncomfortable. People who don't want to see change are content being part of a suboptimal failing procurement system, which is costing billions extra and is failing servicemen and women. To look more specifically at the current Ajax uh, armoured vehicle programme, it is beleaguered with problems and some experts are saying that what you have to do is either decide on spending much more money to fix those problems or scrap it altogether. Jeremy Quinn has said the money that's been spent, they have a contract with General Dynamics and that they will have to fix the problems. Uh, how do you see this developing? I think we are seeing a situation where one side believes it has a cast-iron contract which can be enforced to every respect. And we see another side of the contract which looks at it in a different way and will actually be able to afford much more expensive lawyers because I think we are heading for a massive legal showdown and that just is not going to be good. That will guarantee we will not see Ajax in service. Francis Chooser there. Uh, Michael Clark, do you think he's right that we'll never see Ajax centre service? Uh, I think he's at least half right that the, the, the future of Ajax is absolutely on the line now. I mean, Jeremy Quinn was being rather equivocal, as he has to be as a minister, about the future of Ajax. But it sounds as if some of the problems that they've got with the Ajax system could be showstoppers. We can't go back to, to square one, or that's far too expensive. We shouldn't land on the army a suboptimal system that's meant to serve with Challenger 3 and Boxer as, as the backbone of the, the army, Boxer, Ajax, Challenger 3. If one of those systems doesn't work properly, that's really very bad news. And so we might find ourselves trying to buy abroad again, which would be quite humiliating for the government. I hope that isn't the case, but Ajax is certainly um, on life support at the moment in terms of a project. Well, the theme that ran through much of the DSEI agenda was the changing nature of defence and the increasing reliance on technology. That's something that Colonel Caroline Woodbridge-Lewin understands. She's the head of the Information Warfare Group at the UK Defence Academy. It's an institution that's set to expand, but when I caught up with her, I started by asking her to define information warfare. To look across the information environment and work out how do we generate people to fight in the information environment. My daily battle is about generating skills and expertise uh, and experience through learning and training to fight in the information environment. So will the UK wage its information warfare campaigns in the open? Will it always be openly acknowledged to be the work of the UK military? Or will we in future have to engage in the more shady operations we've seen from Russia and China? I think the terms shady operations uh, are you know, misleading in many ways because Rightly, Britain sees itself as a very responsible cyber power, a responsible operator in the information environment. And that requires us to work uh, within the guidance of rules and law, uh, international order, 
but also have a really clear set of ethical principles that we align to. Under your remit is the Defence Cyber School, which as a result of the integrated review is becoming a Defence Cyber Academy. Can you tell me what that will be exactly and what the ambition is for it? The key thing about our growth is that we know we need to broaden and the school hasn't had the capacity to do so. So in generating an academy, we are going to concentrate on uh, talent management and working out how do we take this group of really well-trained specialists and make sure that they have careers. We know we need to also work more closely with other government departments. And this is really about trying to work collaboratively to establish a cyber profession. So looking at a skills framework that's, that's pan-government, that's also recognised and understood by industry, and noting that defence will align with that and work out how do we actually give our people the licences to operate inside these environments, and qualified and recognised. And just finally, what is the future threat or danger that keeps you awake at night? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many things that keep me awake at night, my children usually. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of you know, th- future threats, I think the thing that keeps me awake is the nature of their, ev- their evolution, actually, is that threats that, that happened last week will evolve and change. And actually the thing that keeps me awake is how quickly we can... Uh, respond to new things you know uh, there are lots of really incredibly capable people out there who are keeping an eye on what that future threat feels like Um, but we've got to come up with answers and so you know there's a sort of turning turning circle all the time in terms of you know the the threats that are presented how we've responded to them what was a really successful outcome and how do you then learn from that for the next one how do you prepare for that you've got to get into the mindset of your adversaries or uh, criminals or people who operate in this space um, and that requires you to, to, to you know, work with a whole number of organisations to understand and baseline the threat and then work out how you're responding to it. But also, what's the next one? How does this evolve? And that requires you to be imaginative. That requires you to be creative. That requires you to think differently. And that's one of the reasons why we, re- we need diversity across the cyber environment too. And that's not just in gender. Uh, actually, it's across a number of different areas. Neurodiversity, we've seen that there's some people who have some exceptional uh, value to add who come at this with slightly different mindsets and that's exciting and an opportunity at the same time. That was Colonel Caroline Woodbridge-Lewin from the UK Defence Academy and that's all for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. thinking alex we should do a podcast how about cooking too overdone ghosts too scary education oh too learny love island too just too what we need al is a complete life changer of a podcast relatable current engaging forward thinking and very very sexy how about old military aircraft why didn't you say? Whatever you do, don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet. I, I don't think you ever got over that feeling. You couldn't see what was happening, but you knew you were very close to the ground and you were trusting a piece of engineering to keep you safe and alive. Join us each week from Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession where we will be full on geeking out with the people who flew them, fixed them, loved them and even hated them. We're not just Av Geeks, we're Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession.